0: Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. It hit me last service that you know some sermons are preached and some sermons are lived. And uh, man, Jan has lived a sermon. 57 years, you think me and Matt preach long. Uh, what an amazing lifetime sermon she has preached with her life, that Jesus is the king, amen? Guys, I feel like I'm getting old. Uh, and the reason I feel like I'm getting old is because I'm starting to experience things that old people do. Uh, and it's this, uh, some of you know what I'm talking about, it's when your kids start wearing clothes that like went out of style a long time ago. <laughs> but now they're like back in style again. It's like, hey, sweater vest. Thank you, 1980s. Uh, you know, you st-. But the thing is is that it's so out of style, for so long ago, they didn't even know it was a thing to go out of style so it can come back in style because it's been out of style for so long. And then you're like, I used to, like, we used to wear that stuff. And so I'm in this place where it's like, man, that is so ancient that it, and it, it can become relevant again. And that's kinda how I feel about the book of Malachi. No joke. This book was written like 2,500 years ago. And and the things that it's saying and it's preaching are so old that they have become so relevant today. It, It seems like Malachi might've written this book to the church in 2021 from everything I can see. If you remember from last week, God through Malachi is formally expressing some disputes he has against the people of Israel. He's saying, Israel, I love you, but these are some things I have against you. God had ended Israel's captivity. They had been in Babylon for a long time, and God in his faithfulness took them back out of Babylon, let them come back to Jerusalem, let them build their wall, let them build their city, let them rebuild their temple. And yet, Some years later, when Malachi is writing to them, it seems that they're back to their old, unfaithful ways. And so this first dispute that God gave to them that Matt preached on last week was this. He says, I have loved you well. I love you. I've loved you. And Israel's response back to them is, no, you haven't. How have you? How have you loved us, God? Because if if you loved us, it would look like this. And the problem is this, that Israel is not trusting God himself. Rather, Matt said and preached to us, and it was amazing truth. Rather, they are putting stock into their own evaluation of God and how he should be loving them. They're not trusting God. They're trusting their evaluation of who and how God should be. They're committing a fundamental sin and one of the fundamental sins of all fallen people like you and me. And it's this. I get to evaluate God. I get to look at God and say, you should be this way. You should love me this way. If you loved me, here's what you would do. But God says, no, I have loved you. I've loved you well, and I still do. He's pursuing his people, even though they're in deep rebellion to him. And now in verse six, I'd ask you to open there, Malachi 1, 6. God opens a second dispute. But in this dispute, the tables kind of turn. In the first one, God says, I've loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? God, you haven't loved us. And in this dispute, God basically says, you don't love me. You're not loving me. Or at least certainly, you don't act like it. Here's what he says, Malachi 1, starting in verse six. A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. So interesting how God once again starts this dispute with relational terms. Remember in the first one he says, I've loved you, it's relational. And in this one he says, am I your father? Am I your king? What kind of relationship do we have? Again, in this dispute, he's saying, we need to define this relationship. What kind of relationship do we have? I'm supposed to be your father. I'm supposed to be your king, your Lord, your master, but there's nothing in your response to my love that would confirm that. Instead, you are doing things that communicate a deep, deep contempt for me. And now Israel pushes back on God's claim that they've degraded and devalued him, and they go back and forth on this point together. Continuing on, he says, but you say, how have we despised your name? God, how have we despised your name? You say we're despising your name. Tell me how. And God answers, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? God answers by saying that the Lord's table may be despised, held into contempt, shrugged off. Now we see why God has made this claim. The priests have been allowing polluted offerings on God's sacrificial altar. God envisions this sacrificial altar as a dinner table. He's saying, you come to me and and you bring over for dinner a meal that's supposed to honor me But look at what you're bringing. Look at the offering you're bringing to me. He moves on in verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? You see, the law of God on offerings for the Israelites was very, very clear. In Leviticus 22, it makes it very clear what kind of offerings are to be brought to God. That faithful people who trust God with all they have bring him the best. Don't bring second class stuff to God. Oh, but but I'll lose out on some financial. Do you think I can't 10 times over replace what you give to me? Bring me the best. Bring me the best of what you have. Leviticus 22 makes very clear that blind, lame, mutilated, and sick animals are like strictly prohibited, just not on the menu to bring to the altar. And yet this is exactly what some of the people of Israel are bringing to God as an offering. And the priests are allowing it. And God now gives Israel a dare. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he not show favor? Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. You see, Israel is still being ruled by Persia. They were out of exile back in Jerusalem. But Persia, who's now the world power, is still governing over the whole world or a good portion of the world. And in each one of those places, like Israel, they would install a governor to make sure that the people of Israel were staying put. They were doing the things they were supposed to do and obeying the Persian government. And God says to them, you've got this foreign invading governor ruling over here, you. Would you bring a blind, sick, lame animal with his legs falling off? Would you bring that to your governor? That's not even one of you. You wouldn't, but that's what you're bringing to me. That's what you're bringing to your father, king. And God's claim is this. You are treating me with less respect than you would a human governing invader. Do you really think I'm going to bless that? Now, someone might argue, yeah, but what's the big deal? God doesn't need the animal. It's just going to get burnt anyways. It's not like God's actually going to eat the animal. Like It's going to you know, make him sick if he eats it. What's the big deal if they brought him something lame or sick or blind? He doesn't need it after all, and you're right. God doesn't need those sacrifices. And that's exactly the point. God's issue isn't the sacrifice itself. God's issue is the heart behind the sacrifice. Remember how God starts this whole dispute, relationally. Am I really your father? Am I really your king? Israel, what do you really think of me? Church, in relationships, what we give is a sign of what we value. In a relationship, a gift you bring to someone is oftentimes a sign of what you value hey, if I had an acquaintance or kind of a friend, you know, we're not super close, and it was their birthday, and I just sent them a simple text saying happy birthday, or even just like sent them a Starbucks card, like five bucks, hey, go buy yourself a coffee. That's appropriate, right? That's good, that's a good gift, and, and you know, we're just acquaintances. But what about on my anniversary with my wife? What if, what if on my anniversary with my wife, I, I went to Taco Bell, got some food, and like, you know, got the receipt and just scribbled a little note on the back of the used Taco Bell receipt with grease and beans on it. Gave her that note and then had a crunch wrap, took a couple bites out of it, happy anniversary, here's a half-eaten crunch wrap. But I gave you something, I, I gave you a gift. The gift became a slap in the face, didn't it? It's no longer a gift. Because it's not worthy of the honor I should show my wife because she's the most important person to me in the entire world. If she is, I'm going to bring her something better than that. I don't have to break the bank. But the gift I bring her shows what's in my heart about her. And sometimes what we give isn't much. What we can give isn't much. Do you remember the story of Jesus in the temple? And he's watching a little old lady, a widow, and she puts a penny into the offering plate. Everyone else is putting tons of money in. She puts in a penny. A penny. What does Jesus say about her gift? She gave more than all the rest. Why? Because she gave all that she had. What was in their heart is God. It's worth it to give to you even if it means I starve. It's the heart behind the gift that God is judging here. They, Israel, were bringing the equivalent of a half-eaten crunch wrap to God when they could have given so much more. Do you think the blind, lame animal was the best animal they had in their flock? No. It was such a clear reflection of their lack of value for God. They were bringing selfish, greedy, half-hearted offerings to their father king. And look at God's shocking response. Verse 10. Brace yourself. Oh, that there were one one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Oh, that one of you priests would just shut the doors of the temple, shut it down. No offerings would be better than these offerings. It would be better to just lock the doors of the church than to allow this display of lukewarm, disloyal hearts. And now there's this incredible prophetic contrast about the future of worship. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, otherwise known as across the entire earth, My name will be great among the nations. That's Gentiles, people who aren't God's chosen people. The Gentiles, people who God did not choose to do his work in the world with. In them, my name will be great. And in every place, incense will be offered up to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you, Israel, profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted or okay to be held in contempt, to brush off, to treat as small and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. He's saying, Israel, don't you realize that the future of this world is that all people across all nations, all languages, the Misteks, the Americans, the Germans, all of them across the whole world, Gentiles who are not my chosen nation will worship me with more honor and zeal than you, my chosen people, do. These Gentiles, people who didn't know God, who worship pagan gods, will one day worship me in purity. We're the proof. Maybe not the purity part, but we're the proof. A bunch of people, most of which are not Israelites, are not Jews, worshiping God, coming to this building to worship God. We're the proof of this. Across the earth, the nations will praise and worship God. And yet my own people treat me like I'm not even worth worshiping. And look at Israel's response to his rebuke, verse 13. But you, Israel, say, what weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Imagine a kid rolling their eyes at you. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God then goes on in chapter two to implicate the priests for their hand in this and condemn them for the fact that they were showing favoritism to certain people Letting them come with lesser, cheaper offerings to God, and the priests were gaining from it financially. Here's the big picture the priests of Israel were allowing the people of Israel to treat God as a second rate, territorial God that wasn't worthy of them bringing their best. And what is God's response to it? He says, I will not accept this. I do not accept this. I will not bend to what is convenient to you. I will not bless a people who treat me as a cosmic genie who should be happy that I give him anything at all. And above all, God says to them, I will not share your loyalty. I will not share your loyalty for yourself or for anyone else. I am a great king and I will have your full loyalty or I will have nothing at all. And 400 years later, when Jesus was born, this is the situation Jesus was born into, but seemingly on steroids. It got worse. There was both rampant disregard for God and his laws and his purity And on the other end of the spectrum, there was this hyper-legalism that looked godly, but but as it turns out, wasn't about God at all. It was about powerful people using God to hold on to their power. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? Hmm. But here's the great news. When Jesus came and made the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrificial system went completely away. So none of this applies to us. Wink, wink. The sacrificial system's gone, so it's impossible for me to bring a polluted offering to God, so Malachi 1 doesn't apply to us, does it? There's nothing in this message here that would speak directly to the heart of the church in America in 2021, is there? We should just pray and in the service. Sadly, for those of you who are super literal, I was being sarcastic. Sadly, I think this chapter in Malachi is eerily applicable to the American church in 2021, and I take no joy in saying it because it applies to me, and it applies to every single one of you, or probably maybe just most of you. this next part of my notes, um, I'm just going to read. And I ask for your grace in what I'm about to say. Um, after observing others, and, but mainly myself over the past few years, um, what I'm about to say is currently where I'm landing and I'm not totally sure I agree with myself on all that I will say. I don't, know if it's just an emotional reaction. I don't know if it's truth from God. I'm likely going to offend some of you. I will likely offend all of you. And I know that because I offend myself when I say it. So I would beg you for your grace from me. Um, And if what I say doesn't 100% reflect the heart and thoughts of God, um, please forgive me. I believe that it does or I wouldn't say it. But I always do want to reserve the right to be wrong and repent if necessary. So please extend me grace as I read to you some thoughts that I think may be from the Lord. I don't know. The average American Christian seems to have very little awe or zeal for God. We are happy relegating him to an add-on segment of our comfortable lives. When we come to worship, we so often bring a polluted offering because we mix words that honor God with demands for our own personal preferences that honor ourselves. We pollute our allegiance to God by mixing it with competing allegiances like status, money, and especially these days, political alliances. Decades ago, Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary and a Bible scholar, predicted that political tribalism would become the new religion. Sadly, in 2021, this prediction has become reality. My loyalty is to my politics, my comfort, my money, my sexuality, my control over my own life, and charting my own personal destiny. That's not just the world in 2021, that's the American church in 2021. That's us. The similarity in all these statements is my, me, I we, even and maybe especially in the church, have converted to the apostate religion of self. Not all of us, but many of us. If fasting from food shows me anything, it shows me that I am not sufficient in myself. My hunger shows me that I am in deep need of something, not from within, but from without As a human being, I was made to need something outside of myself greater than me. Even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were not perfect. They were morally pure, but they were not whole without what God gave them, without him. They were not complete without God and what he provided. And we as human beings, whether in a morally perfect state, or in our current broken state, we are not self-sufficient. I was made to need something greater than me. If this is true, then I am not worthy of worship. I'm not worthy of my own loyalty. I'm not worthy of my own life and living my life for myself and what I want, nor are any of the pet beliefs or clubs that I belong to. Someone else is worthy of my worship. Someone else is worthy of your worship. It doesn't matter what political, social, economic, sexual, philosophical tribe you align with. Any entity that treats Jesus in word or deed as anything less than the sovereign king of the universe is sub-Christian. So unless your tribe or your club that you affiliate with has at its core, Jesus is the king and that he alone deserves our loyalty and is to be obeyed in all things and doesn't just say that, but actually does it, including the parts about loving your neighbor as yourself, refusing to tear down the image of God and other human beings and is committed to the shocking unity under the name of Jesus from people of all different tribes and beliefs. Shocking unity. If your tribe doesn't believe and do these things, Jesus wants nothing to do with it. But Jesus, we say, it's only half polluted. Would you offer that to your favorite politician? A half polluted meal. then I believe God answers no. I will not mock my own holy name by endorsing your silly little club. No matter how long the list of redeeming qualities you say it has. Your faction. Your belief system. Your politics. Your team. I will not mock my name by endorsing what you think is better than me. Do we really think that of all the philosophical approaches, all of the political tribes, all of the economic and social movements that have existed throughout the entire existence of human civilization, that Jesus is looking at your current personal tribe of choice in 21 and saying, thank God, finally someone's figured it out. A movement that got it completely right. A philosophy that I can proudly endorse and get my name on. Put my name behind. Send me a bumper sticker, guys. I'll put it on my chariot. Do we really think God is getting on our bandwagons? American Christianity in many ways has become a marriage between Jesus and my personal brand. A marriage between Jesus and my socioeconomic tribe. A marriage between Jesus and my worldview. So much so that some of us are even willing to part ways with other Jesus followers who don't share our views. And then we justify it in the name of Jesus. We justify disunity in the church in the name of Jesus because somehow I'm the one with the perfect wisdom and doctrine. But Jesus isn't married to my opinions. He's not married to my political party. He's not married to my tribe or to my preferences. Jesus Christ is married to his bride, the church. A divided, selfish, politicized, political party puppet, worldly, immoral, disunified church is no church at all. It is a polluted offering to a holy God. And if this is the way we in the American church choose to proceed, perhaps God will say the same thing to us. Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors. Or perhaps, perhaps that's exactly what he did say to us in 2020, when the doors were shut because of a pandemic. I know that's a very incendiary thing to say, and I know everyone in this room has a different perspective on whether the church should have closed or should have stayed open, and I'm not going to go back to that and I'm not gonna entertain a political conversation. And I don't know the mind of God and I don't have the knowledge, wisdom or credentials to answer the question about that, but I think the question needs to be asked. When's the last time that an event affected the entire world? When's the last time an event, a season, affected the church across the globe? So, I don't know what God was doing through the pandemic, but I think we should at least ask the question Was He giving us a shot across our bow of saying, the polluted offerings you're bringing me, of your confused loyalties, it would be better to shut the door than to meet it all? I don't know if that's the case. I don't even necessarily think that's the case. I'm just asking the question. But God is gracious and his love for his church is unending and he responds in mercy and we must respond in repentance. We cease our polluted offerings of Jesus plus. We treat him as savior and king by pursuing intimacy with him above and before all other things and when his word is clear, we obey. We are called to stick to him and stick to each other no matter what. No matter what. And through the words of our brother Malachi, he is our brother in Christ, even though he's no longer living, he's living, he's with the Lord. But through our brother Malachi, God is posing a question to us, and it's the same question he was asking of Israel back in that day. What kind of relationship do you think we have? What kind of relationship do we have? Am I your father? Am I your king? The whole basis for God's complaint against his people was that this broken relational mindset of what suits me is what I'll bring to God. That doesn't work. That is not his aim for our lives. Thinking that this offering that fits my life, that's convenient to me, is less costly, that's what I'll offer to my Savior the leftovers. Polluted thoughts, words, mindsets, and behaviors that we bring before God, is expecting Him to conform to my way rather than me conforming to His. Because, see, I don't want to have to change my mind. I don't want to have to confess and repent of sin. I don't want to adapt to God. I want Him to adapt to me as I am, to my preferences, to my politics, to my sexuality, to my greed. And to the Israelites who were living this way, God says, this is evil. It is evil. And this is so very similar to much of the American church today. Now certainly it's not true of everyone. Oh, don't hear me say that. I am so grateful to know people who are the exact opposite of this, who have leveraged their entire life to say yes to Jesus. There was one standing on the stage earlier. What loyalty to a king. There are people who live, and it's no question where their loyalties lie that it's in Christ alone. I'm thankful for this. But I think we as the church should at least consider this question on a whole, is our loyalty to Jesus so polluted that God would rather we shut our doors? And I don't think the answer to that question is is to shut the doors and close shop. Jesus said his church will prevail against the gates of hell. That's where you're supposed to say amen. Jesus said his church, even his church in America in 2021, his church will prevail against the gates of hell. That's what Jesus said. So I don't think the answer is to close shop because we're in a bad place. I think the answer is to repent. I think the answer is to change. I think the answer is to finally Surrender. Letting go of all loyalties that compete with my king. I know that when a preacher gets up and asks questions like this and says things like this that are hard, it's really easy for us to respond in the same way that the Israelites did.
1: What weariness
0: this is. Oh, Travis, just say something encouraging, please. Had a hard week. I know, I know. I get that, these questions annoy me, they irritate me, they frustrate me too, because they are a disruption to my wants and my comforts. Asking these questions may mean I actually have to change something and do something different and think differently. But one of the Holy Spirit's main jobs in the life of broken people like you and me is to disrupt to break my cycle of autopilot and addiction to the way of this world. If my life isn't being disrupted by the Holy Spirit, then I'm not growing, I'm not transforming, I'm not imaging my Jesus well. If you follow Jesus, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you should expect disruption to be normal because he loves you too much to let you stay where you're at. In the words of Paul, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12.1. Guys, animals put on an altar is not the offering anymore. We are. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. It paid for sin. But Paul says, We are now the offering, and we don't do it by dying. We do it by living. We're living sacrifices. Every day, I have a choice to lay my life on God's altar. And the question is is it a polluted offering that I'm laying on His altar? Am I laying down a person whose heart is divided, whose mind is divided, whose loyalties are divided? Thank God for his amazing grace. He is so merciful to a divided heart like mine. God is willing to take us as we come, and yet he is unwilling to leave us as we are. God will take you in any way, shape, or form that you come. You don't have to clean yourself up up for God. You don't have to make yourself worthy for God. He says, come as you are, and I will love you. And if you surrender to me, I will take you into my family. But do not think that he will leave you in the state that you're in. He loves you too much to let you stay in a place of, of unsurrender, of destruction, of rebellion to him. God's response to Israel's half-heartedness is the same as it is today. I will not share your loyalty. I will accept you as you are, but I will not leave you as you are. And if your gut response to everything that's been said this morning is that it feels harsh or legalistic or you say inside what weariness this is, I don't wanna hear this. May I just, with all the love I have in my heart for you, try to humbly plead and offer you the words of Jesus himself. Listen, this is the words of your king. Luke 14, 26, if any, anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes out against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." These are hard words. But this is what your king said. Obviously, Jesus, who just four chapters earlier in that same book of Luke, commands his disciples to love their neighbor is not condoning actual hate for family. Okay, you don't have to hate your mom or your wife or your brother. But... Jesus uses hyperbole to paint a picture of how great our love and loyalty for him must be if we want to call ourselves disciples. In comparison, in comparison to all of our other loves, our love for Jesus will make those loves look practically like hate, though it can be very deep love. Compared to our love and loyalty to Jesus, all other loves and loyalties will be and must be eclipsed. Last week, Matt challenged us with a question. He asked, What if I began to order my life as if the Bible were true? I think that question is incredibly poignant after reading this passage in Malachi. If this is what God says to his people who are half hearted and not fully loyal to him, what if we lived? as if that's true. And when I want to ask another question. I want to pose another question for you to consider. What if I began to order my life with God as my father and king? What if everything I did and every decision I made and every affiliation that I have was filtered through the lens of God is not only my father, but he's also my king? and I must obey him in all things. How do we do this? How do we live with God as our father and king? I wanna give you some really quick thoughts. First, give God the first and best moments of your day, every day. How can we expect to honor God when we get up, get ready, run out the door in a frenzy, start work, start school, start whatever it is you do during your day and haven't given God any time? How can we expect to follow him when we haven't even talked to him? Give God the first and best moments of your day every day. Second, Learn by repetition to be in his presence and hear his voice. How do I get to know the voice of God? By hearing it over and over and over and over. I can't do that if I give God no time. And if I don't give him my best time. And number three, do what he says. Obey. Obey your king. I must obey my king. This is faithful, loyal, loving obedience to Jesus. And one more thing I want to offer to you. I think God demands that every one of us take a long, hard look at our loyalties, our affiliations, the things we give our heart to, who we align with, and to repent of any that have competed with Jesus. This morning we're going to have communion together. Jesus' instructions for communion is that we would remember him. Remember that he is the God who sacrificed for us. Remember that he is the God who with more than lip service, but through his own death has proven to us, I have loved you and I still do. And Paul tells us that we are to do this, have this small meal together, until Jesus returns. We are to keep the return of Jesus, return of the king in mind as we eat this bread and drink this cup. And in a sense, remembering him as our king and the returning king who will come back and rule this entire world, in a sense, participating in this small meal is an oath of loyalty. It's saying, Jesus, all that I am is for you and your kingdom until you return. I pledge my allegiance to King Jesus. The question is after this, as we pledge our heart and our life, unpolluted offerings to God, will my life this week match my words and my pledge? Would you close your eyes? Would you take just a moment to reflect on that question? Am I surrendered to Jesus? Have I given my undying, undivided loyalty to him alone? Repent in the ways you have not, the ways I have not, and ask him to lead us to a place of deep repentance and surrender. Do that now. Jesus, in eating this bread, we remember you. You said that this is your body. You said to eat it in remembrance of you. Jesus, you are the king, and we pledge our allegiance to you alone. Church, eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus Christ, your king. And Jesus also said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we remember your blood spilt on the cross for our salvation, our atonement. And we drink this in remembrance of you. Jesus, we're so grateful for your mercy. We're so grateful for the words you speak to us, even when they're hard, even when they cut deep, even when they call into questions, things I've always relied on, things I've always devoted myself to. We thank you that you love us enough to not just save us, but to transform us. would you grant, King of Heaven, that we, this church, this family, this body, would be undivided in our hearts towards you. That we would be holy, that we would be pure, single-minded on your kingdom coming and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, Do it in us. When you return, King Jesus, we want to be found doing your will. We want to be found awake, not sleeping. We want to be found holy, not impure. We want to be found in you, not divided. Jesus, do it in us, we pray. Jesus' holy name, everyone said. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.